invite you to turn with me in your Bibles for time in the Word. Matthew chapter 6, 19 through 21 is my text this morning. Matthew 6, 19 through 21. If you're using a Red Pew Bible, that's on page 916. 916. may be that on page 916 or 915, uh, you'll see chapter 6, verse, verse 1. I'm actually going to read a couple of verses leading up to verse 19 to 21, which is our main text today. Chapter 6, verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Drop down to verse 3. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Go down to verse 6. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Drop down to verse 17. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The Sermon on the Mount is a masterpiece. It is a masterpiece that rivals the greatest artworks that have ever been put together. The movements between the sermon points that Jesus is preaching are artistically arranged. There is a beauty to them, and there's a cleverness there that uh, can be very intriguing as you're listening and reading the words in front of you. But I also know that in the realm of art and appreciation, not all have the same level of patience to stop and smell all the details. Through the years, I've had to learn the hard way on family vacations. Uh, I, for one, would love to uh, spend all day at Gettysburg and read every single plaque. But I've learned through the years that my children can, I might have 30 minutes. That might be it. And uh, someday I'm going to have that opportunity to just go and just read every single plaque. Because I want to have the star, like, I want to have that reward in heaven of reading every single, no, just kidding. But I want to say that we're not children, though, thankfully. Uh, we can handle a focused look at Jesus' sermon, and we can think about the details at least for a half hour on a Sunday morning and find ourselves refreshed, blessed, challenged. We're looking at something that's beautiful, yes, beautiful, 
But the beauty of Jesus' sermon goes beyond aesthetics. It goes to the very root of who we are as people and calls us to follow. It calls us as the word of God to respond to his teaching, not to just look into the law of liberty and walk away unchanged, but that we would be hearers of the word and doers of it, and not just spectators, that we would be participants. This sermon is a different kind of law. James, as the brother of Jesus, adapted a lot of the Sermon on the Mount in his own letter. I believe he referred to the sermon as the law of liberty because if you follow the teaching of Jesus, it will release you. It will release you to find the flourishing and happiness that you desire and you've been longing for all of your life. It is a law of liberty. But yet it takes a lot of focus, a lot of putting yourself underneath of his instruction in order to learn the principles that will release you into the fullness that you so desire. I don't know if you realize it, but in the last hundred years, the promise of increased productivity through multitasking has not lived up to the promise that was proposed. I'm sure that there are some who increase their productivity, but I don't think that many increase the quality of their work in the multitasking effort. I used to work at uh, an auto factory that prized itself on the capacity to, to multitask. Uh, it was Toyota Motor Manufacturing, and uh, I've seen some, some results of people getting distracted in their work focus, and it wasn't pretty. Um, but sometimes, uh, even technology makes this whole enterprise of trying to stay focused uh, even worse than it already was for us as human beings. Uh, sometimes we've got a, there's this little function on your phone that says, do not disturb. You know, you, you can slide it over. It's a great thing. And that way you can stay focused and actually get something done. So in the sermon, Jesus is encouraging us not to get distracted with all the cares of life. You want to find flourishing happiness. It actually requires you to focus in on what he's teaching us. Not just looking at his aesthetic beauty, but doing what he asks us to do. Now, I'm going to just, you know, in this, in this text, I've read just up to an illustration, like a first illustration about a potential divided search for treasure. He goes on to give two additional illustrations about dividedness. He talks about two eyes. First, he talks about two treasures, two eyes, and then he talks about two lords or two masters that we potentially could serve. So this morning, I'm just going to focus on the first illustration in which Jesus is calling us to live a singular, focused life, responsive to his teaching, and it builds on everything that he has said previously. Now, I know that after preaching after Easter and Palm Sunday... It's been a little while since we've been in the sermon, so we have to kind of reflect a little bit on what this treasure is that he's referring to. 
we might it might feel like we're going to miss the point if i land on the principle that he's actually talking about righteousness not tangibles it may seem like i'm missing the point because probably most of us have heard about this and we've probably been taught that if we give to the lord we will be laying up treasures in heaven like monetary giving right perhaps sometimes we've been taught that and on one level Jesus is going to talk about the distraction that finances can be. But here in the first illustration, I believe he's leading out of the repository of what he's, he's been talking about in regard to righteousness and virtue. Righteousness, we might not realize this, it is a matter of the heart. It is something that we, we desperately have to get a hold of and understand. That it's not out there as acts so much as it's internal as virtue. Righteousness, though, is a treasure. It's something that I believe is scarce. And if you think with me a little bit, you'll come to probably appreciate that righteousness is a scarcity. Lots of people think that they have righteousness. But they don't have it. Scripture even says in Romans 3.10, as it is written, there is what? No, there is none righteous, no, not some, no, no, not any, none. There is none who have righteousness. There is a shortness of supply of righteousness. Just because there is a short supply does not on its own, make treasure, excuse me, make righteousness treasure. Demand is also needed too. There needs to be demand. You know, we've been told in the last couple of months that uh, one of the reasons we've seen increases in cost is due to what is called, you can probably say it with me, supply chain issues, right? We've all heard this to be the case. In fact, it can be a convenient opportunity for a lot of us to just blame it on the supply chain issues. I even heard someone say that if your kids ask you to do something that you don't feel like doing, you could just blame it on supply chain issues. <laughs> now that might not be the best parenting advice. I doubt that. Jeremy's got some better ones and you can see him at his class after this. But my job as a preacher of the gospel is to help you to see that there is a scarcity of righteousness. A scarcity. To have a scarcity mindset. Jesus said in his sermon that the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Not many. Few. Righteousness is a commodity that not many people find. And it's so important for you to realize and value it as a treasure because you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven without it. Another author in the New Testament, author of Hebrews, said this. 
Strive for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Righteousness, holiness, or virtue is required to enter into the kingdom of heaven. I don't think any of us will be served if we try to imagine that we will on our own have enough righteousness to tip God's righteous scales. Remember, it's written, there is none righteous, no, not one. And the problem of sin is it creates a heart division and unrighteousness. Sin creates an imbalance in God's scales of justice. I think that we need to reflect on this as a treasure, but we need to see it as not something tangible. We need to think about it as something qualitative, that it is a quality of existence, being a righteous person. It's a state of being, of existing. In the Old Testament, a righteous person was somebody who who is just, who is true, who is honest. An unrighteous person would be unjust. They would be false. They would be dishonest. But this also extends to material things, too. Have you ever looked at gas pumps lately? I mean, not just the, the price per gallon. That's going up. But have you ever looked at the stickers on it? And I'm not just referring to the sticker that says, I did that. What I'm referring to is this sticker up here called Weights and Measures. For hundreds of years, our state has sent out regulators to test the scales, the systems that judge measurements and quantities throughout our state. And you can be grateful that they have. Because an unjust or an unrighteous scale would be fraud. You would be paying more for things than what you think you're getting. There would be inequality. I once asked a contractor if uh, he thought another contractor within his trade uh, would give me a fair price. Or as I said it at the time, a reasonable price, right? And he replied back to me and said, no such thing. This guy's honest. Think about that for a minute. His internal scale is honest and true. So therefore, what he produces and expects for payment is equally honest as well. And I never thought, I've never, I don't think I'll ever forget that. And what he meant was that he is honest, that he's true to the scale, he's a righteous person in his dealing. And this is what Jesus means when he talks about wholeness of heart. Without the sin that breaks down and creates imbalances in the scale. There's trueness there. Honesty. And so when Jesus says that there needs to be a greater righteousness of heart to get into the kingdom of heaven... He's referring to a quality of existence internally. And a greater heart righteousness is required. 
Jesus said, you can look at it, chapter 5, verse 20. He says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribe and the Pharisee, you'll never enter into the kingdom of heaven. See, if the Department of Weights and Measures were to take a sample of our hearts, what would they find? What would they see? Would, would they see an honest heart that says that all of our righteousness is as filthy rags? That's honest. We have to be honest about the fact that we have an inability to stand before God's law on our own. We're sinners. We have to admit, and in the admission, there is honesty. There's justice. There's reckoning. They're saying that he is holy and I am not. I need what he offers. I need it desperately. It is a treasure that I need. And if I don't have that righteousness, I will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. What's the difference between recognition that we're falling short of the glory of God And the actual falling short of the glory of God. I mean, we could be honest all day with one another, talking about you know, how we don't measure up and how that we're all sinners and we're all in a place of need. We can all we can do that all day, all week, all of our lives. What's the difference between recognition and reception? How do we gain the treasure? How do we gain a greater heart righteousness? It, it requires that we don't live in denial, yes, but we have to be honest not just about ourselves. We have to be honest about Christ and his righteousness. What do I mean? What I mean by that is we have to set a high value on what Jesus did upon the cross. If he is perfect and holy, he has what we need, we have to be honest and say, not just that we have a need, we have to be honest in our hearts and say, I need what you have to offer. I need the righteousness that comes from the Son of God. I need that for me. That's a part of the equation of honesty. He's got to be treasured above all else. Later in the book of Matthew, Jesus will give a very short parable, and he'll say this. He'll say that the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Discovered it, he found it. It was more than he ever could imagine. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. It's not enough to be just honest about your own stature before God. You have to also be honest about the treasure that God offers. You have to put your faith and trust and rest in him alone for the righteousness that you desperately need. And you have to live out of that faith in, in recognizing the gift is for you for all of your life and for eternity. That's the nature of saving faith. Righteousness is a treasure. It's a matter of the heart. 
things. Being honest about ourselves and honest to God about what he gives and offers. This is so important as a, a, a piece of Jesus' teaching. It, it's coming after his, his great you know, uh, statements on prayer and fasting. and he's, he's starting to transition now into how to live your life as a follower of him. And in chapter 6, verse 21, he, he gives this illustration that he has this kind of like this resounding thought. At the end, he says in verse 21, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And really what he's saying is what you value is who you really are before God. So you have these people who, who go out into the marketplace and they pray in a way that they can be seen by everyone around them. They, they want to be seen as, as godly people. That's their treasure. That's what they're looking for. The adulation of people around them, congratulating them. That's, that's empty. But that's who they really are before God. And what we value is really who we are before God. And there's a, the potential of looking at the wrong things, being divided and distracted. Well, in this short little illustration, verses 19 through 21, he says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. And Jesus is explaining that there is a there is a real problem of, of like looking at things and having our vision distorted. You may think that chasing these externals, these valuable treasures, material treasures are worth your effort. But really, what's most worthwhile is that which you can't fully see. You're not seeing it because you have a divided heart. You're, you're looking in the wrong direction. And the danger, there's a danger and a problem of a distortion. Have you ever heard someone say, you are what you eat? Well, if that's true, if you eat a lot of junk, then you're kind of junk. It's, there's a certain sense to that. You know, you, 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 you consume a lot of unhealthy foods and you're going to become unhealthy. In the same way, what you value and you value, you consume. And what you value, you will become. Someone recently thought that I was talking about them. I, I, I didn't mean to be talking about anyone when I was talking about driving. <coughs> driving and, and looking the other way and your wheels, you know, turning the wheel with your eyes. I was talking about myself. I was joking. But the reality is, is that what we treasure and value, we, we tend to move towards. And what we value in the end is really who we are as a person. Visual distortion occurs when we become distorted by what we are looking at. So you've seen these visual distortion pictures. They're very hard to look at. Maybe they could pop one up on the wall for me in the next slide. Isn't that hard to look at? I mean... You look at that long enough, and gradually you're going to have a migraine. I mean, it looks distorted and harsh, but gradually you're going to start to feel what you see and experience. 
But this can also be positive. For example, someone who's not very fit can change their selves by looking at lifting weights or going to the gym. They can start to focus and value that time in the gym. And gradually over time, something happens to them. They start to change physically because they're focused and they're valuing uh, that, that uh, outcome. They pour themselves into the routines and gradually they become what they value. Well, the clear and obvious implication of this is that we ought to be valuing what God values. What does he treasure? And he treasures his own son who gave himself for us, who is the picture of righteousness. And as we pour our hearts into him, gradually our souls become like him. God knows what you value, even if you don't see it clearly on your own. He knows. He knows what you value. You know, Jesus in the sermon, he's trolling the religious establishment. He's, he's constantly poking at them and saying, look, this is what you're really valuing. You think that you're standing before the law and keeping the commandments, but you're writing them down so that you can keep them. You're not really valuing God's approval. You're looking for the approval of men all around you. The way you worship, it's all about how people perceive you. Three, three times Jesus describes worship that is not worship at all. It's empty. Praying to see, be seen by others, giving alms to be seen by others, fasting to be seen by others. That's crazy. Not just because I like to eat, but it's crazy because it's the one thing that no one could ever see or tell if you were actually doing it. Like, you have to be hardcore desiring people to know that you're fasting in order to make yourself look miserable, in order to get the questions, honey, what's wrong? Oh, oh, you're fasting. Good girl. It's the least likely. And they do something bizarre. They start to smear themselves, as it were, with like ashes and... They're looking for the praise of men rather than the reward from God. Look at verse 16. And I apologize. I have to do this. This is like looking at a plaque in a museum. In verse 16, we see this. Well, I'll start verse 17. It says, but when you fast, anoint. Let's see. Verse, did I say verse 16? Yes. And when you fast... Do not look gloomily like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. The word disfigure is the same word in the next couple of verses that is translated into English as the word destroy. And Jesus, <laughs> Jesus is so masterful. He's like Michelangelo painting here and it's like they disfigure they destroy themselves in order to be seen by others 
Do you catch the irony in that? It's like they're canceling themselves so that they might be seen by others, but the reality is they're not being seen by God. They're canceling themselves before God at the judgment seat. Later in the sermon, Jesus is going to say, Depart from me, for I never knew you. That's scary. One more plaque in the museum. Look at verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust disfigure or destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust disfigure or destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. To disfigure is to destroy. See, God knows. He knows what you treasure. He knows what your eye is craving. Because motive is tied to the heart. And he knows each and every one of our hearts. And what we value, he knows. And you will become like what you treasure. And to crave the reward of man's praise is poor return. In fact, it has diminishing, degrading, destroying effect. It's passing away. And what's worse, it's going to disfigure you. It disfigures. If you're going around looking for praise from other people and you want that so much, you're going to come out looking like the walking dead. Earthly treasure will leave you intensely dissatisfied. A distortion of your soul will happen. You think about social media and the desire for the praise of others. I've just recently read story after story of like articles where, where people have been destroyed internally because they crave the affection and praise of others. They want to be seen. But if you train yourself to pursue virtue, you're going to be changed for the better. And what's greater is your Heavenly Father will see you and reward you. He'll give you what you really desire. What one values is really who one is. And Jesus is arguing throughout this sermon that we've got to value his righteousness. We've got to be honest about our own souls and desire his righteousness. We're coming up in verse 33 of this, this verse. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added unto you. Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. I think sometimes we pull away from expressions where 
it gives the appearance we're, we're, we're working for a reward. But we have to take seriously what Jesus is saying in the sermon that your Heavenly Father is not ashamed. He's not ashamed to reward your virtuous faith. He's not ashamed to do that. So you shouldn't be ashamed either. You should be seeking righteousness because that's what matters to God. accumulate the rewards and treasures of his notice and of his esteem is of great value. If we truly understand what treasures in heaven are, though, do we? Do we really understand what they, they entail? I don't want to just talk platitudes. What is it that we're looking for? Well, ultimately, we're looking for him to say, well done, but he he wants us to be willing to take loss here on earth. He wants us to be willing to, to suffer for following him. We're to be ambitious. We're supposed to be passionate, engaging in the work of the Lord. We want to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. But what does that mean? What does it mean? What does your heavenly father reward? This is what he rewards. He rewards any loss that you take if you suffer loss to your personal reputation because of following Christ your heavenly father knows chapter 5 verse 10 it's in the sermon he says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. People are going to say all manner of evil against you. And I know it can hurt. It can be very painful. And it's something you may never recover. You'll only live once. And people will do awful, awful things to you. They will. But if you don't require them to repay you, your Heavenly Father will repay you. If you refuse to bow the knee to public idolatry in this world, the public marketplace, people want you to lie and worship a false reality of gender stuff, your Heavenly Father will know He's going to reward you. That's a loss that you may take that you may never get in this lifetime to re regain. But your Heavenly Father sees and knows. Some might know the name of Milton Friedman, an economist. He said famously that all debts get paid good principle because what he meant by that is that either the person who loans money pays the debt or the one who borrowed the money pays it back the debts are all paid and this is what it's this is what Jesus is referring to he said you know you may be 
tempted to lash out in anger against someone who has caused you to suffer loss. An illustration on anger. He says, beware, don't don't try to get back what you lost. In your anger, you may actually commit more sin and you may have to pay the last farthing. Let it go. The debt has been paid. You demand from other people. Why are you doing that? Your Heavenly Father will pay you in full. An honest heart will recognize, though, that your debt has been paid. Your debt has been paid. You know, we have an incalculable crime against God himself. What God demands from us because we have sinned against him is eternal punishment. But because of the blood of Christ, he exempts us. He paid our debt. The debt's been paid. Why are we exacting from others losses? We can't be doing that. You want to be a son of your Heavenly Father? And you love those who are your enemies. You do good to those who, who have hurt you. This is the light that shines. The capacity to love, to forgive. And when you do, you pay a debt. You absorb the loss. Just as your Heavenly Father has absorbed your loss. Your Heavenly Father will reward you for that. So Jesus is saying, pay attention. Pay attention to what you treasure the most. Because this is going to determine how you will be rewarded one day. Physical assets are easier to visualize than virtue. It's easier. It's just, it just is. Jesus wants us to pay attention to our inner souls. What are we wanting most from those around us? Are we requiring debt repayments from other people? Jesus wants to give you the righteousness that you don't have. He wants to give you Freedom. He wants to give you forgiveness. I know children have a hard time of staying focused. A mark of maturity is the ability to stay focused. Having a singular heart for Christ will cause you to become effective and fruitful as a follower of him. A few years ago, we went to visit my great Rita great aunt Rita in Maine and my family in Maine is a you gotta know it's a little eccentric um, they don't think anything of uh, just you know bringing animals large animals into the house uh, they have horses and we were visiting my great aunt Rita on her deathbed and she was in um, she was she was in her hospital bed and they brought in a miniature horse into the house to entertain our children. Our children were like overwhelmed with the thought that there's this, this 
horse in the house. <laughs> and so we said, well, let's get a picture with Aunt Rita and the horse. And so I handed my phone over to my, my cousin, and she was holding it. And you know how it is. You pick someone's phone up, and you think you're doing a picture, but it was a video. <laughs> right? And so she handed it back, and I looked at what, I, what the picture was, and this is what I saw. I saw one of our boys looking as straight as he could at the camera, but then the hand was going like this to touch the nose of the horse. <laughs> A horse in the house divided the focus. <laughs> we, as followers of Christ, can get divided focuses. Do not dare lose sight of the righteousness of Jesus Christ as our reward. The gift of the Holy Spirit comes into our hearts and liberates us to be able to forgive those who have hurt us. Greater reward is a matter of the heart. And what you value is really who you are before God. And your Heavenly Father is not ashamed to reward your virtuous faith. James said, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer, who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Who do you need to forgive? Who has required and taken something from you? Who do you need to release from debt obligation? Your Heavenly Father has paid all your debts. That's laying up for yourself treasures in heaven. 